0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall and I've got Bruce Weiner here with me, my co-host that you hear us together every week on these shows and we also have a special guest Paul Moore today with us as a return guest and the previous times were a long time ago so you maybe do not recognize this voice i think it was 2018 last we had you on the show but welcome to the show Paul
2: hey it's great to be here thanks for having me on
1: awesome thank you so much so before i share too much about what we're going to be talking about today I want to say if you're in this space of saying, I want to invest well and I'm interested in considering all of the different asset classes that I really could consider, how do I weigh them one over another? And how do I figure out should I be in multifamily? Should I be in single family homes? Should I be in um, flipping properties? Should I be in cash flow rentals? Should I look at Self storage. Have you even considered self storage? Today we're talking with Paul Moore, and he's done considerable work in the multifamily space. And then he's really shifted his lens and his focus to the self storage area, and the um, and really been in this new way of looking at investing. So he's written multiple books, and today we're here to talk with Paul Moore about investing in self storage in his newest book, Storing Up Profits. So before I jump in, Bruce, I know you have some thoughts that you'd like to share at the beginning and just really leading us into this conversation
0: today. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, Rachel and I, we've, we started this podcast a long time ago for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons that we started is to help people understand how money works. And so we tried to actually focus on this being an educational platform. So what Paul has to offer, we are not endorsing that, the money advantage, nor the state of Virginia or nor the state of Missouri and uh, um, my affiliation with E3 Wealth is not endorsing this either or our broker dealer Kalos Capital. This is solely for uh, educational purposes. And if you would like to reach out to Paul directly, uh, we would suggest you do that along with your CPA and any financial advisor that you, you have. Uh, saying all that, you know, for educational purposes, you have to really look at how real estate works in a person's portfolio. And one of the things that it does is it's non-correlated to traditional other assets that people normally invest in. And this is one of the main benefits of this, uh, the non-correlation for the volatility purposes. And there are also many, many more, uh, tax breaks. Uh, what I believe Paul's going to talk a little bit about today is about self-storage and how self-storage actually brings in another benefit, which traditionally is recession-proof, so brings in another volatility buffer about, uh, in that, in that uh, specific area of real estate. We're excited for you to listen today, uh, to find out uh, things that you thought were true that, that may not have been true and other things you may be exposed to for the very first time. But this is an educational uh, podcast today, and we hope you enjoy.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Bruce. And I think that was a really good lead-in to the conversation today. So Paul, I'm going to turn it over to you. I know you've got a lot of experience and background in the real estate space. For somebody who has not heard of you or heard about your background before, can you kind of lead us through quickly your backstory and what you've done in real estate and where you are today?
2: Yeah, so uh, I sold my company to a public firm at uh, age 33, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do next. I thought I'm going to be the best husband and father and friend, and we're going to move to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And uh, I think I became the worst version of myself, the worst husband, father, and friend, because I really wasn't fulfilling my calling. wasn't really, you know, I was this type A, uh, you know, fast paced entrepreneur in my mid 30s and i was bored and so i also knew that i needed to find a way to protect and grow my wealth and so i turned to real estate so we started flipping houses then we started flipping lots at smith mountain lake uh started building houses and i found out something really important that everybody needs to know If you don't know how to tighten the doorknob on your own house, you probably shouldn't build a house. I'm just saying. I remember you saying that the
1: last time, and you know, that is definitely, I can relate and identify with that. So go ahead.
2: It's really true. And um, I'm in the same with self storage, which I'll get into in a minute. But over those years, I tried to figure out how does somebody invest in commercial real estate? How does somebody jump from residential to commercial? I didn't know how to make the jump. Well, in 2010, we invested in an oil and gas deal that went south in North Dakota. And uh, we actually found that there was a massive housing shortage. So we started, we built a couple multifamily facilities, which we operated as long term, you know, extended stay hotels. And we made a lot of money doing that in multifamily. And then my business partner went on to build a Hyatt Hotel that I was involved with. And that did not make a lot of money because oil prices shifted. But at any rate, the, um, uh, the multifamily world just really intrigued me. So I decided to stay in that. I ended up writing a book, like you mentioned, called The Perfect Investment, humble title, as you know. And uh, I, I thought, I'm going to stay in multifamily forever. But then I realized, hey, it, the perfect investment's not perfect if I have to overpay to get it. And I felt that, you know, there came a time when people were paying 10, 20, 30% more than the math warranted to buy some of these assets. And we didn't want to play in that game. And so we went on a quest to find assets that were, you know, had a lot more meat on the bone, a lot more upside. And the first one we found of several was self-storage. And so we fell in love with self-storage years ago. But we didn't have the team, the track record, or the technology to do it ourselves. So we created a fund to invest in self storage and other asset types. And we've got five funds now. But um, that's how I got from my mid 30s to my late 50s.
1: That's really fascinating. And I know, Paul, that you're doing a lot of work with um, Bigger Pockets as well. And that has been a big part of your journey. Can you share how you're involved with Bigger Pockets and sharing on that platform?
2: Yeah. So after I wrote my book, um, somebody encouraged me to consider becoming a blogger on Bigger Pockets. And it was actually a lot easier back then to become a blogger. So I did that. And then I got involved. I just kept asking them about every six months hey, is there anything else I can do to serve you? And so I, you know, I, I was actually following this is a little kind of a learning point, I guess, for me it was Bill Gates. He, he did three things to become the wealthiest person in the world. Number one, he decided at a young age what he wanted to do, and he stayed in that lane. Well, I was already messed up with the young age part. Second, he decided he found the biggest, most influential platform in the world that would be willing to let him partner with them. And then third step is kind of you know not obvious. He did everything in his power to make them successful. Not himself, but them. And of course, he became the wealthiest guy in the world when IBM succeeded with his Windows operating system. So um, I basically took that attitude. And so they'd let me do videos. They let me do live shows. They let me write a book and they published it. It's just been a wonderful um, uh, relationship for about six years now.
1: Mm, That's excellent. So is your most recent book published through Bigger Pockets? Yes. Oh, that's excellent. Okay. So can you walk us through what are the 40 reasons, or not all of them, clearly, you can't share them all on a show, but your book starts with these 40 reasons why you love self-storage. So if somebody is considering self-storage or maybe has not even considered self-storage up to this point, what would be some of the most compelling reasons why you found to love self-storage that they might be interested in
2: or needing to Yeah, you bet. Um, So self-storage is unique because it's recession-resistant, not recession-proof, of course. And it's actually strengthened during booms. I mean, in good times, people are filling up their Walmart and their Amazon cart, and they need a place to store some of their stuff. In bad times, you know, the people might be downsizing or relocating or shutting down their office, restaurant, or bar like we saw in COVID, and they need a place to store their stuff. And so uh, we've found that self-storage has done pretty well in good and bad times. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing is the rents the price the rents and revenues are inelastic, and what that means is the tenants aren't particularly price sensitive. If I had a thousand dollar apartment and you raise my rent six percent, I might say, "You know, rather than pay uh, an extra sixty bucks a month, seven hundred twenty dollars a year by signing this lease, I might move." But if I had a self-storage facility, I mean, if you had a self-storage facility and you were renting a unit to me and you raised my rent from, you know, $100 rent by 6%, I'm probably not going to spend an, a weekend, rent a U-Haul, get mm-hmm. my friends together to move all that junk. I mean, excuse me, my, those mm-hmm. treasures down the street just to save six bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And so I might grumble, but I'm thinking, eh. As soon as I get a long weekend, I'm going to clear that storage unit out anyway. Of course, that long weekend never comes, and the rate increases continue to pile up. So there's a high switching cost. There's a perception of a short stay. Um, self-storage, more than many other assets, captures uh, the increases brought on by inflation. Hmm. Um, if I have a you know, warehouse or a factory that I'm leasing for 20 years, or a dollar general store, you know, a lot of commercial real estate, those leases are set for years or even decades. But self-storage, you know, I can raise the rent at a self-storage facility every month. And like I said, people typically don't leave. The thing I like best, though, is the fragmented industry. Now, self-storage has about 53,000 facilities in the U.S., uh, that's about the same as McDonald's, St- Starbucks, and Subway combined.
1: Oh, wow. But you said 50,000?
2: 50, 53,000, yeah. Wow. Okay. And so it's hard, it's not hard to believe anymore. It used to be, but now they're popping up everywhere, and the question would be, are they overbuilt? We should answer that later. Hmm. But um, at any rate, the the industry's got this large size, but 75% are run by independent operators, and two out of every three of those independents own one facility, which classifies them as a mom and pop. Now, that doesn't mean they're poorly run, but a whole lot of them don't have the desire, the knowledge, or the resources to increase income and maximize investor value. Heck, they don't have to because in the last five years, the value of their facilities has doubled just from the market demand as cap rates have shrunk from let's say 9% to let's say 4.5%, the market has deemed that same income stream worth double. And of course, as they've increased their rents, it's increased the value even more. So uh, a lot of them are really mediocre and they can be inquired at, let's say, top dollar by an expert. And this expert operator can go in and do all kinds of things to extract the intrinsic value It's also called value add that they left on the table. And by doing that, can significantly increase the value of the property and drive investor returns. And so that's some of the things we love about self storage.
1: That is very interesting. And I was going to ask you if you can comment on the idea of if they are cropping up everywhere and you're seeing self storage be built really on every corner, what does that mean in terms of? Are there too many facilities? Are they full is the, and and how does this relate to the idea that I mean as Americans are we just uh, hoarding? are we too attached to our things are, are we i mean how, yeah. do, how do we relate to that whole ideological or philosophical idea that the stuff is maybe not as necessary and, and you know maybe yeah. we as humans are too attached to things
2: self storage is um has roughly the same demand level all across the u.s i mean there are places really wealthy places or places that have don't have basements and attics like florida and texas um, that have higher demand but it's roughly the same interestingly the demand or even the phenomena of self-storage is virtually non-existent everywhere else in the world except canada
1: Interesting. And so
2: that kind of answers um, yeah. your uh, question. The subtitle of my book is Capital. It's called Storing Up Profits. Capitalize on America's obsession with stuff by investing in self-storage.
1: <laughs> well, and that, that in itself is very interesting. I mean, maybe it's not a good value system that we have to prioritize stuff so much. But at the same time, I mean, we're not going to necessarily convert an entire society away from that. So there is a need. There is a need based on the desire of our society.
2: Yeah. So to answer your question, yeah, um, I'm writing an article as we speak this week called uh, Isn't Self-Storage Overbuilt? And the answer is yes, it is overbuilt. In certain locations. Mm. I could take you to Nashville and drive you all around town and show you that it is overbuilt and I have some technical you know, some behind the scenes stats to show you that. But I could also take you south of Nashville to a close in suburb. Um and there are a couple suburbs there south of Nashville that are extremely underbuilt, like mm. Bellevue and like Belleville next door to it. Um those, uh, suburbs, uh, are underbuilt. And part of the reason is the high cost of land. Part of the reason is zoning. You've got a, you know, zoning people who don't want self storage there. So it's very hyper-local. That's one answer. And the second answer is there are these mom and pops that might be poorly run or just, you know, just managed, you know, in an average way, if you will. Um, in locations that large competitors, large national companies that are building on every corner would never go, places like Beeville, Texas, where we have 607 units um, in a self-storage facility there that's massively profitable. And I could, if you remind me later, I'll go back and give you a little case study on Beeville self-storage, security self-storage in Beeville, Texas. Another one, get this, Ishpeming, Michigan. Who'd ever heard of that? Well, (laughs) probably about the 3,000 people who live there and the people Mm -hmm. in the surrounding area who all drive there to store their stuff in 1,500 units that we have invested in and are making a wonderful profit. So it is very
0: hyper-local. So one of the things, Paul, if you could compare and contrast, so like multifamily value add, um, a lot of times they do not, I found this uh, in our due diligence committee that I'm on. I found this very interesting that most multifamily value add type of situations, they do not want to be 100% rented uh, for a variety of reasons. The one reason is, is they feel like if they're 100% rented, it probably means that the rents are undervalued. They haven't pushed the rents to where they are. The second reason is when you're not 100% rented, then your unit, when it comes available, you can actually do the value adds and and upgrade those particular situations. Do you right. see a similar situation with like the mom and pop situations where they're, my guess is they're, they've been in a rocking chair, literally and figuratively, just having that cash flow come in, they're 100% rented and they haven't pushed their rents, they haven't done any value adds, so on and so forth, is, is that why you maximize value so much in those mom and pop acquisitions?
2: Yeah, there's so many ways to maximize value. Um, I will tell you, yes, We I talked to a large self-storage facility near me recently, and they said, yep, we've been here 28 years, we've raised rents four times in 28 years. I, I found that unthinkable, but they were they were happy because they were 100% full and making a lot of money. And so, uh, I'll tell you, Bruce, the first time I heard value add and self-storage, I think I laughed out loud. I mean, where are the countertops and cabinets and flooring and uh, bark park and lighting and you know new appliances? None of that. We're talking about four pieces of sheet metal, some rivets, a floor, and a door. yet the opportunities for self-storage value add are amazing. And um, I think there are actually more in self-storage than in multifamily right now for most of the deals that we look at. And I could give you an example or two if you like. Yeah,
1: that'd be great. Yeah, so I was thinking, can you walk through an example? And then also, if that mom and pop operator is loving their income, why in the world would they sell? And how how do you acquire then? that type of a unit where they're very happy already at a rate that works for you
2: yeah so a lot of these folks are you know older they're ready to move on their kids you know don't do not want to operate the business um some of them see that you know they could get into they could do a 1031 exchange out of this let's say million dollar facility that now has grown to three million and they can, you know, buy something else that they don't have to operate that can throw off that let's say 5 or 6% income that will set them up for life. And so I think that's why, you know, a lot of them do want to sell. Also, they're getting offers they they just can't believe and they think mm-hmm. the people making the offers are crazy. Um of course, you know, that they, they these are experts, you know, that are making these offers at least in many cases and they're going to be able to significantly augment the income and the value. Hmm. Um, so yeah, value. go ahead and walk
1: through some value add ideas or options that you use. Yeah,
2: let's go through some value add options. Um, if, um, here, here's a, a quick example. If you raise the rent by 10%, so about self-storage, like every other commercial real estate property, including large multifamily, is based on a value formula. The value is the net operating income, divided by the cap rate. And so if you can increase the numerator and keep the denominator, if the denominator stays constant, then you should be able to significantly increase the value and even more so increase the value of the equity because you're using leverage in many cases. But uh, here's a a handful of value adds in self-storage. Some of them don't sound like value adds, but they do add income and value. One would be filling vacant units. Um, another would be by reigning in delinquency. We invested in a Grand Junction, Colorado, self-storage facility that had eighty percent occupancy, and so increasing that to the the normal level of like ninety five would see you know that would drop the vacancy by three quarters. But more importantly, it had eighty percent delinquency. Eighty percent of the people oh, wow. weren't paying their rent or weren't paying on time. And that's kind of typical for a mom and pop. So that's a way to increase value. Another would be uh, add um, a billboard uh, or a propane filling station or an ATM or a cell tower. Those would be some value adds. Another would be um, add U-Haul. You can get commissions from U-Haul from renting out U-Hauls for anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000 a month. Let's use our value formula to see what the value of U Haul would be. So let's say you had a $2 million facility. You had $800,000 in equity in it and $1.2 million in debt. Well, uh, if you added U Haul at $3,000 a month in commission using our value formula, that's $36,000 a year, 3,000 times 12, 36,000 divided by 0.06, which would be a conservative cap rate these days would be, again, the value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. So $36,000 by 0.06 would be a $600,000 increase. Wait a minute. If you only had $800,000 in equity in this and you just signed an agreement with U-Haul and got them up and running, uh, you just increase the value of that equity by 75% just by adding U-Haul. That's a pretty good lever to pull. And so that's an example. Other things would be like adding point of sale items. Like you could set up a showroom, selling locks, boxes, tape, and scissors. Another would be adding insurance and late fees. Uh, An obvious one would be reducing expenses. Another obvious one today would be taking some of that vacant land out back and converting it to RV and boat storage. Mm. Huge value add right now and then the last one in my list would be adding some climate controlled units a lot of these old mom and pops are they don't have any climate control and they've got some vacant land with them and you can put a beautiful maybe three-story uh facility right out front by the road increase the look and feel of the whole place and significantly increase your income and value because that land was already paid for
1: that's fascinating so Paul, let's talk about what are some of the risks then? I mean, it sounds like you're talking about a lot of benefits and gains and tremendous opportunity. Yeah. As long as somebody knows where to look and what location to be in we're hearing yeah. here. But what are some of the risks and maybe the downsides to self storage?
2: Yeah. So the biggest risk in self storage always happens during lease up. In fact, we got burned by this on our very first self storage investment. We uh we Invested in a wonderful location in uh, Bradenton, Florida, and it's one of the fastest growing planned communities in America called Lakewood Ranch. We were right in the middle of it on a main road, Um, but uh, two other national competitors popped up nearby right about the time that we invested. And so what it meant was all three competitors had a much slower lease up than planned, A second thing that went wrong there was those national competitors could easily undercut us on price and not feel the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, A third thing that went wrong is, honestly, they outmaneuvered and outmanaged us. They had better software, better tools. And though the company I invested with had great tools, they were still limited. You know, they're a middle market player compared to these, you know, multi-billion dollar REITs that Mm -hmm. came in down the road. And so it took a long time to get leased up. And like the operator told me as I was biting my nails the second year when we still weren't seeing income, um, he said, you know, I have never seen a well-located, well-marketed self-storage facility in decades not eventually get to stable occupancy. And he was right, three and a half, actually three and a quarter years into it. Uh, they sold it, and the investment paid an 80% profit to investors. And so mm. when boiling that down over, let's say, three and a half years, it came out to over 20% per year, which is what we had projected up front. Mm. Um, that kind of tells you something about the market, though. Somebody was willing to pay that much more than we had in it, and we were you know, just getting to the point where the income was stabilized and so it kind of tells you about the the ferocity of the market right now i've got more stories about that but i'll i'll bite my lip on that one um another risk is that the seller lies to you and and sadly we had a uh self-storage facility actually i'll just say it was the same one Mm -hmm. and apparently the seller significantly very craftily and significantly inflated the income going Mm -hmm. in because it wasn't a brand new ground up it was actually it was already built and 60 of the 1,000 units were, it turns out, they just went suddenly vacant the right after the acquisition. And it appears that those were friends and family of the owner or if they were real people at all.
0: Oh. And
2: um, nobody came to pick up the stuff because there wasn't any stuff. And so, that was uh, that was a painful hole to crawl out of as well. And again, using our math formula that value formula can work against you just Mm -hmm. as fast as it works for you, especially when there's leverage involved. And that's what happened with that. Um, Like I said, it turned out well, and right now they usually do, you know, a rising tide, let's face it, raises all boats, but as Warren Buffett said, someday that tide's going to go out and we'll find out who's skinny dipping. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) anyway, that's definitely Um, true. Those are some of the main risks, uh, really. there. I mean, other risks would include, you know, like um, you invest and then the zoning changes. I know about one in um, somewhere in South Carolina. I'm thinking it was Greenville or Spartanburg, South Carolina. They came in and changed the zoning after the land had been acquired and all the plans were drawn up. And that's super, that's a remote possibility that that's going to happen.
1: got to feel pretty rare.
2: Yeah, yeah, i have only heard of that happening once, but mm. um, yeah, that that company, which is a major national player, mm. could not go through with their multi million dollar investment. Mm. I'm trying to think of other risks. I mean, other risks would be theft. We had one that was, you know, people. It's funny they can go in their unit and they can actually cut a hole in the wall and get into the next unit. And that, what's stopping them from going through that to the next and the next and the next? And I've heard, I've never seen this happen myself, but I've heard of somebody. You know, tunneling through 10 units and stealing the most valuable stuff because we're only talking about sheet metal. So it's pretty easy to get through. So it's really important to have security, which is sometimes another difference between a well run facility and a mom and pop.
1: Mm-hmm. And definitely see how that would be an extremely valuable thing to have, knowing that you have the security and maybe even be willing to pay a little bit more for that if you're the customer. Right. Yeah. So, Paul, it sounds like you're advocating. Two things. I mean, I don't know if you do build up, like creating from scratch, building from the ground up, as well as purchasing units that are already in operation and purchasing those and doing the value add. Do you do both or do you just purchase currently run facilities?
2: We generally acquire currently run facilities. However, we're open to doing ground up and reconversions. There's basically four paths to um, success in self-storage. Number one would be ground-up developments, by far the highest risk and the highest potential return. Right behind it would be a reconversion, or a conversion, I should say, of an existing building, or retrofit. My friend, AJ Osborne, actually bought the Reno Kmart, the Reno, Nevada Super Kmart. He had, uh, after selling off the parking lot to apartment developers, he had $7.5 million in it. That was $2.5 million cash and $5 million in debt. He cut it in half, turned it into a beautiful self-storage facility, leased it up. And on the way to lease up, I was on the phone with him in 2018, and he got a, an offer of $26 million on that property. He uh-huh. turned it down because he believes by adding more uh, more storage, adding a second floor, he can actually get it to $50 million. And so he is crushing it with that retrofit or that conversion, whatever you want to call it. Uh, a third path would be buying a stabilized facility, just buying like a REIT would, you know, just something that's already stabilized. That's not going to be appealing to many of us, if any of us. And then the fourth path would be my favorite, which is the value add or the intrinsic value play that we've been talking about on this show.
1: So, Paul, if somebody is really interested now after hearing about the benefits and the success that you've had in this space, what if they don't have $3 million or $10 million to invest in a self-storage facility? What options are there for getting involved in this space?
2: Yeah, so the last third of my book has seven paths to success in self storage. And they, and this is a lot of these, you know, options are, you know, not options that most of us would do, but that would include getting a job at a self storage facility and working your way, getting, you know, growing your knowledge, working your way into the business. It could also be getting a job as a broker or a lender or an asset manager. Uh, lots of things like that. So that's one path. Another is starting small, getting a really small facility, learning the ropes, you know, renting it out, fixing it up, and then moving on to a larger facility. Some people call that stacking or stair-stepping. Another would be joining a company as a capital raiser. If you've got lots of ability and skill in sales and social media and you want to raise capital for other people's deals, you can do that as long as you do it legally. Another one would be being a deal finder, and that would be finding deals and plugging those deals into a larger company and then just keeping a piece of ownership. Um, another would be getting a paid coach or mentor and learning the business uh, from this mentor and then potentially finding a partner or partners, including that mentor, and then partnering with them on future deals. The last path in my... Um, book is my favorite. And that is, of course, investing passively. And if you've got a busy job, a busy life, uh, or enjoying your retirement, and you want to be part of this, but you don't want to get your hands dirty and do it all yourself, you can find a great syndicator or fund and invest with them and let them do the heavy lifting and you enjoy the uh, income appreciation and tax benefits.
0: Oh, I'm glad you said that because that was going to be my next question. Um, you know, that we're not offering tax advice, but what are some of the tax benefits that a person would uh, enjoy in this situation?
2: Yeah, so like on any real estate, you know, we've got the possibility of doing a 1031 exchange, and that is certainly uh, an option with self-storage. Another would be uh, the fact that as a direct investor, you know getting a k1 rather than a 1099 from the company you're enjoying the depreciation losses those depreciation losses are paper losses and they're accessed typically by doing a cost segregation study so if you have a commercial property you can do this cost seg study that allows you to put a lot of the costs of that facility into shorter time buckets If this makes no sense to you, then you probably have to go look it up. But just to keep this kind of short um, for the listeners that do know what I mean, instead Mm -hmm. of depreciating it over 39 years or 27 and a half years, a lot of these components of the property can be depreciated over, say, 15, 10, 7, Mm -hmm. 5. And all those, thanks to the tax uh, law that was passed in 2017, Uh, can be depreciated now in one year through bonus depreciation. It's a way to create massive paper losses and tremendous tax benefits for
0: investors. And what's interesting about that, Paul, is especially now that we're in an inflationary type environment, money today is worth more than it's going to be in the future. So anytime you can get those bonus depreciations or shorter um, shorter, uh, schedules for depreciation, I mean, that's more money put into your pocket today that you can reinvest um, or, or spend or, frankly, give it away if that's, if that's what your heart wants to do. Uh, so that is a very, very strong uh, reason to do this. When you're looking at, when you're looking at uh, uh, tax benefits, I like to always tell our people, uh, especially uh, when you hear people talk about loopholes, these are not loopholes. Uh, loopholes always has a negative connotation, and many people will actually use loopholes for legitimate tax deductions in the tax code. But these are incentives that the uh, IRS, through Congress passing laws that are trying to help people get what they get, and if they get what they get, then Congress gets what they want, and that Mm -hmm. is actually reinvestment into our United States economy. And so I'm I'm a big proponent of this. I'm I'm trying to get the word loophole out of the American vernacular because um, I really, when I hear people say that, they really don't understand how the tax code works.
2: No, he's absolutely right, Bruce. Um, And I agree with your point about inflation as well. But uh, yeah, these are not loopholes. These are what they want. They want people to build self-storage facilities and mobile home parks and boat docks and and apartments i mean there's a huge housing shortage in the u.s and apartments Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of these type of things are you know they're incentivized and i really wish the bonus depreciation wasn't phasing out over the next six years but unfortunately it's going back to normal but even normal is really good I mean, there's a lot of paper losses created through commercial real estate
1: i think that When you look at the whole picture, it's really important to understand all of the benefits that you get by making decisions that might be, they might seem like they're alternative or they're they're not what everyone on the street is doing. And sometimes you find the best opportunities by looking where everyone else is not looking. So Paul, that's one of the reasons why I love being able to talk about things like this on the show. If somebody does want to reach out to you, I believe they need to be an accredited investor to work with you. Um... Mm. Can you talk briefly about that and then share with our listeners how they can get your book?
2: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, if they want to reach out to us, we, I spent years, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, trying to figure out how to get into commercial real estate. So I've created a simple guide, which is an introduction to commercial real estate investing. And then I've also got other guides, including introduction to self-storage mobile home parks, et cetera. You can get that at Wellings Capital, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com slash resources. Anybody can get that information free. If you want to invest with us, like you said, uh, you need to be an accredited investor. The SEC has set up those rules and we need to follow those rules and we do very carefully. Um, As far as getting the book, You can get the book at biggerpockets.com slash storage. And the reason to go there is there's lots of bonus materials you don't get when you buy the book anywhere else. It's also available at Barnes and Noble online and Amazon as well.
1: That's fantastic. Now, Paul, before we let you go, I know we've talked about this on previous shows as well, but you have a a kind of a higher purpose that you do a lot of your work for and you're very focused on generating funding to fight human trafficking. Can you share kind of why that is so, so valuable to you? Um, I mean, certainly that's yeah. a, a cause that I believe, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in and not as vested as I would like to be in fixing that or solving it, but how do you, yeah. how do you use your business to fund the causes that you care about so much?
2: Yeah. So if you took the the why first, um, if you took the record profits, not the average, the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, put those together and doubled that number, that's the approximate profits generated by human trafficking right Mm -hmm. now every year, according to the U.S. State Department. And I'd like to believe if I was alive in the 1800s or if I was an adult in the 1960s, I'd be fighting Against slavery and for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right, and it is slavery, and it's happening right under our noses, right in our time. It's the largest number of slaves ever in history, are uh, right now. In fact, uh, there's it's estimated that approximately 400 people have been captured or sold into slavery since we started recording this broadcast. Mm. And so, it's quite troubling, and I want to do something about it. So, our company is making an effort. To, to go forward to vet. One thing we do in our commercial real estate business is we vet the very best operators and we put those into our funds. Well, in this arena, we're vetting the very most effective nonprofits and we are doing a lot of background due diligence, et cetera, on them. And then we're recommending people invest uh, to free slaves on. Giving Tuesday, uh, right after Thanksgiving, we put in an email, we put out a match from our company, Mm -hmm. and we were able to raise uh, $65,000, which was enough money to free 65 slaves in Cambodia through the organization that we're working with.
1: Wow. So that is a powerful way to say you're not just using your own profit to be able to make this happen, but you're involving your investors and being able to reach these bigger goals. I love that.
0: Right. Yeah, that's right.
1: So Paul, something else that um, we'll probably leave till next time, till next conversation with you, just because of the time that we, we need to take to wrap up today. I just want to thank you for being with us on the show. I thank you for continuing to do good work and being able to educate investors and help people not just yourself to profit and thrive in this investing space, but you're bringing along other people with you and you're providing that coaching and the resources and the guidance and the the content, the books, the materials for people to step into that space and say, how do I become educated? How do I learn more? And how do I step into this position of creating this cash flow and investing in real estate, maybe in a different way than I've thought of before. So thank you so much for doing that work and for coming on our show to talk about it.
2: Thank you. Well, Rachel and Bruce, it's a real honor to be here again, and I uh, really appreciate both of you. And I'm so glad to be here.
1: Awesome. You. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for being with us on the show today. You heard Paul say, go to wellingscapital.com/resources to get those guides for getting started in investing. Anyone can do that, and so I would encourage you to go ahead and get those guides. Thank you so much for listening on this show today, and The one next step that you can take with any information that's educational is to say, let me consider more. Let me become more educated. If this had sparked your interest or your your capability, your concept of what is capable and possible for you, dig into learning more to find out if it would be a good fit. So thank you so much for listening. And in closing, please remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd